Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. A lot of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self-improvement. But as the price of perfection rises, when is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Hreis, host of This Is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace. This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we are live inside the hive of Vanity Fair, and we're going to actually talk to one of my favorite uh, reporters today, Maya Kosoff, who um, has lots of claims to fame, one of which was uh, being hate-tweeted by Donald Trump last week. We'll get to that later in the show. Mike, can you just give our listeners a little kind of overview of who you are and, and how you ended up here? Yeah, so I am a tech reporter for Vanity Fair. I, I work for The Hive. Um, I've been here for about two years now, um, and I kind of write on all things tech and some politics and some media stuff, too. Um, before that, I was at Business Insider for about a year and a half. Before that, I was in school. So, um, in school. So wait, so that means that you are an official millennial, is I, that right? I'm, I'm very, like, middle-of-the-road millennial. I'm 25, yes. Wow, this is going to be a fascinating conversation. I feel like I'm I'm like Steve Irwin. I just climbed into the jungle and I'm about to like show people how alligators feed in the wild. Um, all right. Well, since you're a millennial, let's get straight to it. Um, uh, it's been uh, a kind of, you know, beginning of the year already. Facebook, uh, God knows what is going on with them. Uh, Zuckerberg said that his challenge this year, he has that yearly challenge where he, you know, learns Mandarin or, uh, you know, travels the country trying to decide if he wants to become president or drinks his own urine for a year, whatever it is that he does. This year, it's, uh, he's going to, uh, what exactly is he going to do? I, I can't really understand. It seems like he's just going to be CEO of Facebook for the year. Yeah, that's, uh, that was kind of my, my thought when I saw his personal challenge um, come out on Facebook a couple weeks ago. He basically says that he wants um, to foster more connections on Facebook and make it a better place for his users, which, as far as I'm concerned, is already part of the job of being CEO of Facebook, right? Um, yep. But more specifically this week, Facebook rolled out uh, a new initiative. I, I guess it was at the end of last week, actually. Um, but what Facebook wants to do now is is th- th- to, to – 
to Zuckerberg's point, is foster more connections between their users by promoting posts in your newsfeed from your friends and from your family. Um, and kind of the, the flip side of that is Facebook is going to be de-emphasizing posts from media companies or from pages. And so you're going to see probably more posts from your crazy aunt or whoever and fewer posts from, uh, from, from publishers uh, moving forward. So, so what does this mean for so, so okay, let's just, before we get to our crazy aunt and all the crazy things that, which, you know, is a whole separate, it could be its own podcast, but um, it, isn't this a kind of like a, a slap in the face for publishers who, who you know, last, last year Facebook said, hey, we're going to, you know, we're going to start hosting all your content and we'll give you some, you know, some love as a result of that because you'll get more page views um, and just trust us more and more people are reading news on Facebook and we're going to kind of help uh, help foster that. And now, and all the publishers were like, oh, yes, of course, mm-hmm. hold me, Mark. And, <laughs> and, now, and now it's like, it's almost like, you know, they woke up in the morning and realized it was kind of like a, uh, someone they met at a bar. And uh, like, it, is this, for publishers, is this a complete and utter, oh, shit, we shouldn't have done that? Yeah, I mean, I think the writing's been on the wall for a long time. You saw Facebook uh, have to apologize in 2016 and 2017 for messing up some of the metrics associated with publishers um, on their platform. And so I think publishers have kind of seen the writing on the wall for a while. You've Facebook has kind of charmed them with, with giving them money to do uh, original video programming on Facebook. Um, you you kind of see this dance happening through the years, and it all led to this moment. And publishers now, especially the ones who kind of built their backbone of their businesses on Facebook's platform, are really having, like, an oh-shit moment. So, okay, so so here's the question. Um, what is what do you, What is Facebook going to be like in this situation? Is it going to be like it used to be is it going to be better is it going to be worse and and the other question is one of the things that i have been asked and i don't actually know the answer to this and maybe you as a millennial can tell me <clears throat> is zuck is his whole goal with this it doesn't seem like zuck does things to be altruistic to try to make the world a better place it seems like um and and i say that because of some of the privacy things they do and we'll get to some of that in a little bit but it seems like um some people are questioning, well, is this really about the news and the experience on Facebook and fostering social connection? Or is this about Zuck and Facebook trying to get into China? And, you know, one of the problems they've had trying to get into China is, is the news problem where China, of course, controls a lot of the news. And if they limit the kinds of things that are on the site um, and make it more social that there is a bigger chance that they can get in there and get access to the next billion users. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about China and one that wasn't immediately like considered by many people. And I also think that part of this is that Facebook doesn't want any of the liability that comes with being a media platform. So kind of demonetizing um, a lot of these media properties that have really grown on Facebook in year in recent years um, is a way for Facebook to not be so Netflix-like moving forward. They don't want to be like Netflix. They don't want to be a content provider because that comes with all kinds of uh, regulation that Facebook isn't currently um, subject to. And, and so, so is it is it like, okay, we can't solve the fake news thing, so we're just going to kind of step away from it? Yeah, I think this is like an admission that Facebook realizes that fake news is way too big and way outside of their parameters to control. Like they made this monster and now they don't know what to do with it. And so all they can do is kind of turn the gas off and uh, and, and and let the publishers kind of wither on Facebook. 
So what this monster that they made is now going to, it's still alive uh, and growing bigger and stronger by the tweet. Is it now going to go over to Twitter and other social networks, or is it still going to kind of linger on Facebook, the whole fake news thing? Or, yeah. like, what do you think will happen? I think, well, I think misinformation isn't going anywhere on Facebook, right? Like, if you're, if the people that you interact with on Facebook are posting stories from Breitbart and Gateway Pundit and, you know, like, I, I love mm-hmm. Democrats or whatever, like, these these kind of, like, fake Facebook news pages, um, you're still going to see that in your feed. Like, the news isn't going anywhere as long as it's being shared organically by your friends and family. Like, that is still going to pop up in your feed. So fake news is still going to be there. As for whether it kind of spreads to other social networks, I think other platforms have uh, kind of insulated themselves from this. Twitter, uh, I mean, you you definitely get fake news spreading, vi- like, virally on Twitter. You see that in the aftermath of, of terror attacks or shootings or what have you. Um, but it doesn't really spread quite as perniciously on Twitter as it does on Facebook. And Snapchat, too, has totally walled itself off from this by only working with a list of curated media partners. So they they essentially had to have approved the kinds of news that appear in Discover. So Facebook is kind of alone in its treatment of fake news. So let me ask you a question. As a millennial, do you use Facebook? Do your friends use Facebook? I go on Facebook about once a day, and I do it to kind of see if, you know, if anybody's messaged me. I don't have the app on my phone anymore. I deleted it a few months ago. Um, so I, I just kind of thought, I don't know, I, I thought I was maybe spending too much time on social networks, and I kind of wanted to get away from Facebook. Um, but I, I go on, and I, I use it for events, and I use this kind of like a Rolodex of people who I've known over the past 10 years or so since I've been on Facebook. Um, but I don't, I don't use it to – I don't, like, write posts on people's walls. I don't update my status unless I'm sharing a story I've written or a story I really like that somebody else wrote. Um, I'm, not really, I'm not really, like, a prime Facebook user. So <clears throat> it seems from, from what I've read and, and people I've spoken to and things I've heard that there are a lot of people who only use Facebook as kind of like a Rolodex these days and that, you know, and that the, the company is – is kind of in a, you know, they still have two point, you know, two five to three five billion people on the platform, a quarter of the planet, and um, and you know, while we all know people that leave the platform, what seems to be happening more, that seems to be kind of like a an edge case. What seems to be happening more is every. I mean, I'm not just saying this. Like, I must know. F- three dozen people who have deleted Facebook from their phone. They've deleted the Messenger app from their phone, and they check it once in a while to see if someone's messaged them or, you know, for events. It's exactly what you said. Is this platform, like, can it save itself? Or, you know, is this just kind of what the next iteration of Facebook is going to be? And uh, and there's nothing that Zuck or his team can do to kind of fix that. It's interesting because Facebook seems to be ignoring the fact that people are engaging less than they maybe used to used to do on Facebook, and they're doing things like Watch, which is like Facebook's new video initiative, right? And so I think that they've kind of, maybe this is like a tacit acknowledgement that people aren't using Facebook the way they used to, but they're trying to find new use cases for it. So you see that with Watch, you see it with Marketplace, which is like a a localized like Craigslist sort of thing that Facebook has. um, That I, I actually know people who have sold and also bought like desks or furniture or, um, even clothing on on, on 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 Facebook in the marketplace wow. tab, yeah. I think probably yeah. when Facebook emphasized uh, the placement of the marketplace icon in its mobile app, people started clicking on it more by accident and then kept returning to it. 
Hmm. I didn't know people were actually using it. I see it all the time, but, uh, but it's also, I, I don't have any millennial friends. So here you go. (laughs) That's, that's the, the benefit. So one of the things that is, um, uh, is happening is that, uh, we are seeing this kind of massive shift, uh, with social and how people feel about social. And, you know, anyone who's listened to the show before knows that I've kind of really turned off from Twitter, um, and other social apps. I don't have any of them on my phone anymore. Uh, I download Twitter for like news events and then delete it over the weekend. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I went from tweeting, you know, maybe five, six times a day to maybe once every week or two at this point. Like I just, I just feel icky every time I look at it. Uh, you recently went through an experience on Twitter um, that was not very fun. Tell us about that first and what happened. And then, uh, and then I want to, get your take on what you think is going to happen with the, with Twitter. Yeah. So a few weeks ago, so before Christmas, uh, we made a series of videos for The Hive that were New Year's resolutions for politicians and kind of public figures. Uh, mm-hmm. We made one for Trump. We made one for Gary Cohn. We did one for Steve Bannon, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, and Hillary Clinton. And uh, we tweeted, I mean, they were just, you know, like holiday videos, every every you know media company has them. It was no different from anything that like BuzzFeed or Vox has ever done. Um, we we did the video for Hillary Clinton. I think uh, got tweeted out sometime around Christmas, and uh, I think people people saw the video, and I don't think that they really understood that it was part of like a series, and they misinterpreted it as. Uh, sort of like an attack that we did on Hillary. Um, and it, part of the, the the video was making resolutions for these people. So mine for Hillary was, you know, do something besides politics, like try improv comedy, try volunteering, try knitting. Um, it was obviously a joke, and uh, it got misinterpreted and picked up. And uh, what happened, I think, I don't really know how to trace how this happened, but the first person I saw on Twitter who was really mad about it was Patricia Arquette tweeted about it and started this sort of like cancel VF movement, which I think you've kind of, it's very Trumpy. You've seen an uptick in, in these kind of um, boycotts of publications happening over the past year whenever uh, a publication falls out of favor for, you know, saying something that people disagree with. But uh, this sentiment got picked up and by the next day, a bunch of former Hillary staffers and, and campaign people, people like Peter Dow, um, Adam Parkamenko, um, Tom Watson, were tweeting about it and about me specifically. I don't, I don't, I guess it was the so fact they, that I said the word knitting, but um, they had kind of latched onto this video and they were all very angry about it. And so they, <clears throat> so there was a, it was a tweet storm at, at you. It was like a total, you were like a, you know, Vanity Fair was like a trending topic and, so what what was it like? So I have been on the receiving end of some of these before when I used to work at the Times, and it's the it's the fucking worst because you you want to defend yourself and you want to say, hey guys, this was a you know it's a simple mistake, it's not a big deal. I didn't you know no no animals were harmed in the making of this video, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> and yet you can't because because everyone's like, oh this is the thing we're mad at today. It's a um, it's a, a a journalist and. And it, it it seems that, you know, having been on the receiving end of it, it's made me really see the the really bad side of social media. What was it like for you? Because I know you you kind of you I mean you took notes on your phone for things you wanted to tweet when it was over. I mean, like, <laughs> what was it what was it like for you? Um, it was really scary. I was so this. I think part of the reason why this happened was it was like the perfect storm of 
of timing. It was like the day after Christmas and everybody was home with their family and people were probably, you know, getting cabin fever and they wanted something to be mad about. And there was nothing happening in the news cycle for like two days. So uh, I woke up the next morning and I immediately locked my Twitter account and I, you know, turned off all the the notifications that I would normally get from people tweeting at me. Um, And then ultimately I deleted the app from my phone for like two or three days, um, which was hard for me because I have a big following on Twitter and I, you know, communicate with sources and other reporters there a lot um, and friends. And so it was it was really hard and it was really frustrating because, you know, you can't there's nothing you can say in that moment that's going to, you know, make anything better. In fact, it's probably only going to make it worse if you keep tweeting about it and lending credence to it. Um, But it was really, you know, it was really uh, frustrating and really, really upsetting. It was it was like a really hard three days. And then when I locked my Twitter account, um, the people who were really mad at me also found me on Facebook. They found me on Instagram. Um, They found my email address. They found my personal email address. They found my LinkedIn. Um, And I got a a barrage of just like harassment and abuse on across. It was like a multi-platform thing for like three days. It was it was really wild. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. So my sponsor today is Goop, and I have a very, very, very special guest here to talk about it. Hi, Nick. Hi, Krista. That's my wife. Yep, she is going to talk to you about some of the things that Goop has sent us lately and things that she's tried out. Goop is a lifestyle brand rooted in content that spans travel, food, beauty, style, work. I have to say, I love reading their wellness coverage. It's all rooted in organic and natural ingredients, which, as you know, I love. You are very obsessed with that stuff. I have to agree. So, okay, so you tested out some products that Goop sent us um, recently. Can you tell us a little bit about what you tried? Yeah, sure. Um, I tried Goop Glow Morning Skin Super Powder, which is a drinkable skin supporter that has lots of natural stuff for your complexion, like powerful antioxidants, vitamin C, and E, which was incredible. Um, but I really loved their Juice Beauty Exfoliating Instant Facial, which does exactly what it sounds like it should. It instantly brightens and softens the skin to reveal a glowing, smoother-looking complexion. You have been looking extra glowing lately. I, I've been noticing that. Thanks, so, honey. Should I try this extra glowing uh, stuff? Um, in fact, I think that you should start using it because your skin is always very dry. It is always very dry, and you are always letting me know that. So if people want to give it a shot um, or check out more about any of the Goop products, they have lots of different things uh, on their site, uh, um, you know, all these different products that they sell. Uh, there's these solutions for antioxidants uh, to help with sun and pollution and stress and so on and so forth. You can look at all this stuff at goop.com slash hive. Krista, what is that website again? It's goop.com dot com slash hive. <laughs> goop.com slash hive. Once again, goop.com slash hive. Krista, thank you so much. Thanks, honey. So, so this is, but now, okay, don't you see the, the downside of all of this after this? Or are you still like, oh, social media is great. I love it. Yay. <laughs> I mean, I definitely don't think social media is great. Um, and I think I've done things in the past. Like, I don't have, like I said, I don't have the Facebook app on my phone. I don't use Snapchat anymore. The only social media apps I have on my phone are Twitter and Instagram. And I still only look at, I still have my settings for notifications on Twitter so that I only see them from people who I follow. Like, I guess I've created my own filter bubble. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I can't like get DMs from strangers or anything like that. But I, I, it has made me more mindful and more empathetic of people who are at the center of kind of like outrage cycles like this. And uh, it's definitely uh, caused me to think twice before I kind of like uh, breathe new, like fresh air into um, 
some sort of like ongoing outrage thing by like lending credence to it by tweeting about it. So um, it's made me more a more mindful social media user, so, I think. So do you think that um, that when you kind of look at this, uh, do you think that people literally wake up every morning and they're just kind of pissed off about the fact that they're like the cable company didn't show up or like their, you know, their phone bill is so expensive or Donald Trump is president or <laughs> Donald Trump is, you know, not getting the credit he deserves or whatever it is or Hillary Clinton's Clinton's still alive. And they, <clears throat> they literally just go on Twitter and they're like, what am I going to be mad at today? Do you, th- I mean, is, or like, I guess the question is for me that I still cannot understand. And I've written about this company and it's not just Twitter, but social media in general, because there's a lot of anger and hatred on there. Um, predominantly Twitter, of course. But the thing I can't understand is, are people jerks? Um, or, and, and, and that in, in the real world, with empathy, where you see how you, what you say to people and how that is interpreted, that they act nice? Or is it that people are nice and that using social media and a screen where you don't see how it affects someone makes them into jerks? I think it's the latter. I think that uh, I think that social media can bring out the worst in people, and it definitely brings out a lot of groupthink and kind of mob mentality behavior, as you've definitely talked about and written about before. Um, but I, I do think that it just kind of exacerbates people's worst qualities because it makes it easy to dehumanize someone and not think of them as a person, but more of like an avatar for the thing that you're like your latent anger, basically. Um, and I think that that was what the case was with the whole knitting gate video fiasco was there's still obviously a lot of latent anger um, among people who supported Hillary Clinton, uh, even, you know, anybody who's kind of upset about how things are going politically right now in the United States. And I think that that manifests itself by, you know, having a convenient scapegoat. And I happened to be that person for two or three days. And then it was immediately afterwards, there was a Times reporter who everybody was mad at instead. And the cycle goes on and on. And um, it's not fair. And it, it shouldn't be this way. But I do think that there is some... some uh, there's some degree of truth to the fact that, you know, people wake up in the morning and they're they're mad about the way things are going and they feel like they can't effectively uh, you know, do anything to help. So they can, their anger kind of manifests itself on social media, but particularly, I would say, on Twitter. So what do you think um, – uh, how do you think this plays out? Because and, – and I don't know the answer to this myself, and um, but more and more – as we see with people deleting Facebook from their phone um, or Snapchat or whatever it is, um, uh, you know, it's almost like there's this war with the algorithm um, and uh, and the algorithm is trying to get you to use this product more because then they get to show, you know, more engagement. And, and in the war for the algorithm, uh, the only way that humans can win is to, is to step out of the ring, right? Mm-hmm. And so more and more I see people and hear people talking about or even see them on social media saying, hey, I'm taking a break. I'm deleting this from my phone and so on and so forth. But with Twitter, what I see happen is that, that people do that. And predominantly, they end up coming back uh, reluctantly uh, because of some sort of news event or uh, because of some interest in, in learning more about about a topic or something like that. But it seems like it's like it's it's literally like being in a relationship with like someone who verbally abuses you. It's like you 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 still love them because of whatever you get out of it, but you hate the relationship. Do you like this 
it, to me, it doesn't seem like it is sustainable as a business to have people who hate your platform but use but like hate use it. Mm-hmm. How how do you think? What do you think happens to Twitter in the next few years to the next ten years? That's a great question, and I also think this is something that. Twitter has not, it's been reluctant to address is this kind of hate usage of the platform. I think there's probably more users on Twitter now than there have been in a while because politics happens in real time whenever Donald Trump picks up his phone and, you know, angrily tweets something after a Fox and Friends segment or something like that. But um, it's not good. It's not healthy. And it, it does make you feel bad. So I don't know. I think Twitter has to address that in some capacity. And if it doesn't, then I wonder if at some point there's a new platform we all move on to that is just Twitter, but maybe better regulated and better um, moderated. So um, there's there's better protections against abuse. Um, I don't know if, if human behavior is really going to change, though, from platform to platform. So I don't really know what what Twitter's solution is to all of this or what ends up happening to Twitter. Um, I guess five years is a long time, though. So, you know, you look at Twitter five years ago and it was a a totally different company. Um, And it certainly wasn't, you know, the mouthpiece for a United States president. So I I don't know. I guess I'm not really sure what's going to happen to it in five years. I hope I'm not still on it in five years. I hope I've moved on to greener pastures, but I don't know. To greener pastures, uh, like like talking to people in person exactly. and yelling at them. <laughs> this is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. We all live busy lives, and unfortunately, there's not enough hours in the day to get everything done. My sponsor this week, Freshly, has a solution to help that is convenient, healthy, and delicious no matter what life throws at you. Freshly has a team of chefs that create all-natural, gluten-free dinners and deliver them fresh to your door. There's no cooking, no chopping, no messy cleanup, and best of all, it is delicious. So even if you get stuck at work late, you can still come home and have a delicious dinner that's cooked for you by a chef. I've been using Freshly now for a few weeks, and the penne bolognese tastes incredible. The turkey shepherd's pie is better than any recipe I've ever tested out, and believe me, I've tried to make excellent turkey shepherd's pie before. The best part about Freshly is the number of comfort meals they currently have that are all super healthy, like the buffalo chicken and the chicken parm, and they have a constantly changing, rotating menu of more than 30 new chef-crafted options. There's no weekly commitment, so you just get deliveries when you want them. You can check out this week's menu crafted by Freshly Chefs and get $25 off your first order of six chef-cooked dinners, plus free shipping by going to freshly.com hive. That's Freshly, F-R-E-S-H-L-Y dot com slash hive. You'll feel so relieved to come home to a chef-cooked meal every night with Freshly. Once again, go to Freshly.com slash hive for $25 off your first order. I promise you, you will not regret it. So, so uh, last Twitter question. Um, uh, one of the things that... Um, that has been really interesting is to see the response by people um, to the way Trump uses it and to the way Jack Dorsey decides to allow people to use the platform like Nazis and things like that. And <clears throat> I, you know, over the weekend, speaking of, of, uh, of tweets, uh, um, it was right after the, um, uh, the Hawaii uh, fake missile crisis of uh, 2018. And um, and Stephen Levy, uh, a journalist who I who I respect a lot, said, uh, had tweeted um, that you know everyone gives Twitter so much shit, uh, but if it wasn't for um, 
uh, Twitter, people would that was the first place people found out that the Hawaii uh, missile crisis was actually that was an accident and mm-hmm. it, it wasn't what actually happened. And I responded and said to him, "Well, um, uh, if it were a real missile, people would have been pointing directly at Twitter and saying that as a result, it was as a result partially of of Trump's Twitter usage." Uh, to which Stephen said, "Well, okay, you, are you really going to try to blame Twitter for the way Trump uses it?" And, and my feeling and my response was that I feel like I feel like society has a responsibility to look out for one another, um, and I'm not of the mindset that we should just kind of pull a shruggy um, about the president's tweets and just be like, "Eh, whatever, not a big deal." Um, because if that's the case, then we should be doing that with anyone who uses the platform and. Recently, Twitter came out, and you and I have both written about this, and said that it was not going to police uh, um, world leaders the same way it would police standard users. So if, if, if Trump tweets something that is a newsworthy thing, then they keep it. And my feeling on this is like, okay, well, that's bullshit. How do you get to pick which rules apply and which rules don't? If the rules don't apply to Trump, then all the rules shouldn't mm-hmm. apply to Trump. He shouldn't be able to block people. He shouldn't be able to tweet people by name and set his his, his mongrels after them. He he shouldn't be able to um, uh, to retweet fake bots, which he's done, and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. What what, you, what is your feeling on this? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. I think part of the frustration I have is that Twitter has been so slow and so kind of reluctant to come out with uh, an explicit policy about Trump. It took them until basically now, until like a week or two ago, to even say what it said, which is explicitly that Trump, there's a built-in Trump exception to the rules. Um, And I think that if they had been clearer about that and just straight up, you know, about it from the beginning, people at least couldn't be mad at them for that. But the fact that that Trump is basically, yeah, he's held to a different standard on the account. He can do whatever he wants. He can uh, he can retweet anti-Muslim videos without consequence, and they won't do anything about it. Um, I don't know. I, I think that there's there's something to be said for kind of, you know, I I, I do understand that. I don't know. I understand the, the the point that I he's causing problems on the platform at like a diplomatic level that could result in you know fatalities that we can't even fathom right now. And I think that that's a valid point. And I don't know if it's something that Twitter has really grappled with yet. Like, I think that they're finally starting to get it. But um, it still seems like maybe they don't really understand the magnitude of damage that he can cause by being on the platform. At the same time, I do think that there is a case to be made that, you know, like, he can cause damage for himself by being on the platform. Like he very likely could tweet himself into impeachment if 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 left unattended for long enough with his iPhone. So um, we should just we should put him <laughs> in solitary confinement with his iPhone and just wait it out. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a good idea. I also think maybe a good idea would be coming up with like a dummy Twitter account for his iPhone uh, that John Kelly makes up for him, and he can just tweet <laughs> oh, whatever he wants. And it goes. It doesn't go anywhere, but he doesn't know it. So uh, that's that's my personal solution and something I that's feel like, like Twitter should maybe be working on. That's a great idea. So it's almost like he has a he sees a different Twitter and he thinks and it has all these fake retweets and likes and mm-hmm. people saying yay MAGA and it'll even and send really... him push notifications. So it feels like <laughs> you still get that like an endorphin boost. But yeah. <laughs> all right. So moving on, um, uh, sticking with the social theme, Snapchat. Um, uh, what the hell is going on there? Great question. I mean, their user numbers are declining. There was a Daily Beast report last week. It seemed like maybe. 
I don't know how it was. It was like a treasure trove of data, right? It was like a disgruntled employee on their way out the door just handed it to a reporter and was like, "Here." Um, and it was it basically showed declining user numbers and declining um, engagement numbers over the past few months. Um, and and you can kind of understand then from looking at those numbers why Evan Spiegel suddenly announced this redesign to Snapchat's app a couple months ago. Um, there's not a lot of uh, people aren't using Discover. People are using the Snap Map a lot. Uh, the way that, that we thought that they would, which is on the weekends to see what their friends are doing, which is exactly the point of the Snap Map, which locates your avatar um, on a map relative to where your friends are so you can see where people are hanging out and stuff like that. Which Thank you for explaining <laughs> that to me because I actually have never seen the Snap Map because I deleted all the social media from my phone, mm -hmm. but keep going. Yeah, and so uh, I don't know. You can you understand then why they needed to redesign and you understand why declining user numbers and people who are older not using the platform are a big deal for Snapchat, which built itself as this, you know, millennial haven, basically. And for a few years, it was really successful in being exactly that. And now that it's a public company, it has way more expectations it has to meet. And uh, it's, it hasn't really been doing that. You've seen its stock price fall since it went public last year. Uh, we're nearing, I believe, the one-year anniversary, that's in a month or two, um, of, of its IPO. Um, and and I don't really know. They seem like they're stuck at an impasse. They they like doing creative, wacky things. They made spectacles in 2016, and for a moment, people really liked them. Um, but there was no there was no like selfie drone. There was no Snapchat branded um, selfie stick. You know, like all these things that I feel like like there was no follow up on on Snapchat. You know, rebranding itself as a camera company that delights its users. Yeah, completely. So okay, so now, but here's the question, right? Uh, Zuckerberg, for all his genius, is not a product person. Mm -hmm. uh, there is, I don't think there is a single thing, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, on Facebook that he came up with before someone else had come up with it. Even the newsfeed was somebody else, uh, uh, it was someone else's idea at the company. Zuck understands. You know, he, they copied. I mean, essentially copied Facebook from the from uh, the uh, the twins. Uh, they, um, you know, they copied all of the Twitter stuff with the news. They copied, you know, social engagement likes. Re, you know, all mm -hmm. these things that they have they have they have copied. Um, and one of the things that um, uh, <clears throat> we see happen with Zuck is there's this kind of this line which I I wrote in the Twitter book about how you know, either he, it's it's like either he's trying to hook up with you, and if you won't hook up with him and like join him, uh, he wants to destroy you. And that was something we saw happen with Instagram. He ended up convincing Kevin Systrom to go over to to, to Facebook for a billion dollars, and um, and uh, has, has helped flourish the company. If Kevin would have said no, Zuckerberg would have literally spent every waking moment and sleeping moment of his day trying to destroy Instagram. Mm -hmm. um, and that happened with Snapchat. And uh, when when Spiegel said no, um, uh, Evan Spiegel said no. Zuckerberg said, okay, well, we're going to destroy them and copy them until they are done, and which is what has been happening. How do you – is it possible to have a business that is a competitor to Facebook with the exception of Twitter, which was around over a decade ago, um, uh, that is um, – that's able to stand up to Facebook, that's able to kind of build something that – 
is different to the platform that can't be copied, or is that just impossible? I think the answer to that question should be yes, but the fact that I feel like it's no probably means that Facebook is too big and too powerful. Um, you, I mean, yeah, you like you said, you see this with happening with Snapchat. Now, literally every single one of the features that Snapchat pioneered first has been turned into an Instagram feature now and has already been rolled out on WhatsApp and in Messenger and on the Facebook platform. Um, and I don't know. I, I feel like I feel like we're nearing this point where where Facebook is getting too big and maybe maybe it needs to be broken up. And, and I know you've talked about this a lot, but um, maybe Facebook is too powerful if it can successfully kind of take apart companies like this that are that any ostensible competitor, really. No, I, I, I do think that Facebook um, uh, is too big. Um, I think that uh, um, and I think that the that they should be punished for their actions of trying to destroy anything that um, comes within, you know, four inches of, uh, of becoming even a competitor. And I think that, um, you know, there was someone that once told me, I said, hey, you know, a few years ago when Twitter was was in, in real trouble and uh, going, going through lots of problems, uh, shedding, you know, executive staff, and uh, uh, it was actually, I think, two years ago. And and I said, are you guys going to try to buy fa- uh, face, uh, Twitter? And someone at Facebook said, why, why would we try to buy them? If, if if we own them, we own pretty much every social platform except Snapchat, which we're going to destroy anyway. Uh, and so, um, so, you know, then the regulators are going to come after us. And yet I feel like they have, they've kind of let Twitter, like, breathe on life support uh, indefinitely, and yet they have tried to destroy all these other platforms, and uh, and I feel like it's it's coming to bite them in the ass, and and um, and I feel like it should. I feel like you know they shouldn't be able to just copy and try to destroy a competitor the way that they have with Snapchat, um, and uh, um, and so you know the the they there needs to be something to stop this from happening in the future because otherwise we're just stuck with the stale, boring platform that no one wants to use and all they do is, you know, check to see if they have any messages or go go to events. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And I also think that there there is there is bipartisan support for, you know, Facebook being regulated more more heavily than it is now. You you get that on the left with people with like the Elizabeth Warren types and then you get it on the right with uh sort of the Bannonite crew. They they are are kind of anti big tech and so um who knows what can happen in the next three years, if anything. Why do you think it is that Trump never took to Facebook? I don't know. I mean, I think part of it is that he just, I mean, he clearly has like a years long history of loving tweeting out little 140 character missives. Maybe Facebook is like too, like it, it offers too much for him. Like it's too nuanced. Like he he has all the space he needs on Facebook. And I don't know if he's capable really of frankly, writing like a 3,000 word missive um, that doesn't repeat himself 10 times um, and attach a photo or put in a link or something like that. He can barely handle, you know, you, like at replying people on Twitter. So I, I feel like that's Twitter's like the, the training wheels version of, of a social media platform for, for Trump. For Donald Trump. Um, and last question about about all the stuff and, and we'll, we'll move on to to uh, to some more Trump stuff real quick before we before we let you go is um one of the things that I have seen happening uh, recently is uh, people people who used to use Facebook Messenger um, or even WhatsApp have now been switching to come some of these more secure platforms like Signal and and Telegram and things like that. 
so Facebook, there's been a lot of news lately about Facebook's privacy stuff, and this is something that the company has has been guilty of since day one, and I've written about for over a decade now. Um, but even some of this stuff has shocked me. There was a story, um, a lot of people have always questioned, how does Facebook know um, who your friends are? Um, and, um, you know, I've had instances where, like, I have, you know, someone's been at my house, you know, like there was a guy who was helping us build some shelves, and uh, and next thing I know, I... I I log on to Facebook a few days later, and he is a suggested friend, even though we have no friends in common. And I was like, holy shit, that was creepy. How the hell did Facebook know this person was at my house? Another instance I had was I was at a uh, a party once, and I, um, I about a month later ended up friending someone. And when we friended each other, it showed up in my newsfeed as Nick and this person – uh, became friends. They met at this party, which was in a, a party that I that uh, I guess must have been on Facebook. But that that was creepy too. How the fuck did they know that we met at this party? So there's been a lot of stories lately about um, uh, how Facebook figures this stuff out. Can you tell us a little bit about some of these? Yeah, um, there's one example that rings uh, clear in my mind from a couple months ago. I think Splinter News might have reported it, but. Um, uh, similarly, uh, sex workers are being outed um, by the same thing, where, where their clients will find them on Facebook later, uh, despite the sex workers not giving them, you know, any sort of, like, personal information about themselves. They show up in the people you may know uh, part of, of – of... So, wait. So, people are sleeping with a prostitute, yeah. yep. and, then, and then they log on to Facebook a few days later, and it suggests them as a friend? Yes. Yeah, which is obviously, I mean, obviously a lot of sex workers don't use their real names or don't use their full names, and it, a lot of it is, like, privacy-related um, as part of the occupation. And Maybe this is why Trump doesn't use Facebook. This is entirely possible, <laughs> yes. But that's just one example. Sorry, There's a lot going. of those, yeah. Um, but so, um, obviously, privacy is, is of of utmost importance, I think, in, in these in this occupation in particular. And so um, for this to be happening uh, really raises some questions about, you know, how, like you've said, like how does Facebook know that you know these people? Why are they popping up in in your feed like this? Um, And this is a similar but uh, slightly uh, different topic. But um, something that finally made me delete Facebook from my phone was – I would be talking about something with friends. Like, I think we were talking about swell water bottles one time, the, you know, the, the big metal water bottles. And um, I logged onto Facebook the next day, and it served me an ad immediately for the water bottles that we were talking about, which I thought was really creepy because it's not like we had, you know, typed it into Google or clicked on an article about it. Like, it was just a conversation we were having face-to-face uh, while we were hanging out. And I, I, I think the, the privacy thing, that raises So wait, how do you th- – how do you think that they that they um, they figured out that you were talking about these water balls? Is are they is it listening to your? We were. We thought maybe it must have been like ambient listening, like picking up the app is on all of, was on all of our phones. Maybe that's how it got picked up. It was very odd, and I, I talked to some people about this afterwards. And there's been a, a fair amount of um, kind of like speculative reporting about this uh, phenomenon happening to to many people. Um, so it, it makes me wonder, you know, like what what does Facebook like what is Facebook? Does well, Facebook was... listening to us? Like, is that is that what is happening, or is it is it just all a coincidence that's happened to dozens, if not hundreds, of people? Well, there was a crazy story where um, uh, I think it was just this last week where it turns out that Facebook uses an algorithm um, to detect 
the dust particles on your phone uh, for, with photos that you take, um, so on the camera, um, and it then will match those up to other photos uh, um, of people and figure out that you know them based on the fact that uh, these dust particles that we, our human eye can't see but an algorithm can uh, are in the same photos and uh, and then it suggests them as friends. I mean, <clears throat> this is some creepy shit. I mean, it's 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 um uh, and again, it's you know I I just don't understand how um, how we haven't stopped them from doing this stuff. Yeah, me neither. Uh, I think the best advice is just, you know, use Facebook less and get it off your phone. I, I like, I will never go back to having it on my phone, either Messenger or, you know, the normal Facebook app. I feel like they're listening to this conversation right now. <laughs> they're going to start suggesting water bottles to me next time I go on Facebook. <laughs> um, all right, so uh, so just wrapping up here, um, uh, we'll, 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 we'll kind of wrap up with some, some Trump stuff. Um, how do you think... Uh, this all ends uh, for Trump with uh, the way he uses social media uh, and so on. I mean, he's not going to be president forever. Um, he, hopefully, uh, <clears throat> unless this becomes a dictatorship, um, you know, he eventually, you know, Twitter and Trump are inexplicably tied together from now on. You know, if he does well, they do, if he, you know, if there's drama around him, there's drama around them. Um, and, and, and more people using it. Do you think that 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 Trump eventually be kind of you know eventually he's not going to be the only thing we can talk about? And I'm glad we barely talked about him today. Um, but uh, eventually he's going to be um, kind of this thing on the side that that you know people are like oh remember that crazy guy? Providing we don't die in some sort of nuclear attack, of course. Um, is that the thing that you know? Does he eventually? leave Twitter and go somewhere else? Does Twitter die as a result of Trump dying? How do you think this all kind of ends? I don't think that, I think that maybe suggesting that, I, I don't know if Twitter would die without Trump. I think that Twitter has been on life support for a long time. And, it, you know, it was on life support before uh, Trump became a national phenomenon. And I think it'll still be on life support probably after he leaves office, assuming that we all make it through it and that he agrees to give up you know, presidency at some point. But um, I, I do think that maybe he just kind of like folds into the ether at some point as like crazy old man yelling at cloud on on Twitter um, after his presidency. I, I hope anyway. I I don't know. This is this is where I think the dummy Twitter account or Twitter app could really come in handy where we just kind of like let him continue tweeting. And maybe this extends to building him like a fake oval office that he can go to every day and like tweet out of. <laughs> I think you have to like, construct a different reality for him, so so he'll finally well, like, get out of the office. Well, he does in a different reality. Yeah, exactly. So, so we're gonna. So we should. Should we? Should we start a cryptocurrency to fund this Trump coin? I think it's time for Trump coin. And then we can uh, we can build this this other reality, and he can pretend that he's president for the rest of his life. We'll have a <laughs> fake Twitter account, uh, <clears throat> even when Twitter is no longer here. Um, all right. So last question, um, and then I'll let you get back to. Uh, to hating on uh, social media, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, if uh, um, how does this end for Twitter? Uh, we know how it ends for Trump in complete oblivion, where someone else becomes president and uh, saves the world from total annihilation and from the embarrassment that America has been through recently. Um, <clears throat> but how does this end for Twitter? Is it ten years from now? Or whatever we don't have to say, put a date on it. But is it 
a um, is it acquired by Verizon? Uh, does it just kind of linger on life support forever? Does it grow its users? You know, what do you what do you think based on your uh, what you know from the people that use it and all the reporting you've done on it? Um, how do you how do you think this all ends? I don't think it's unfathomable to think that a Verizon type company could buy Twitter in five or ten years. I think that's entirely plausible. I also think that that might become a more likely outcome the more people get sick of social media and kind of move away for it from it and move into more, you know, like closed off private groups, Facebook groups, Snapchat, things like that, maybe um, other new social networks that pop up down the line. But I, I do think that the more that people uh, – you know, in their minds, they probably do tie it to Trump in some capacity. And, and the more that people kind of get sick of both Trump and Twitter and kind of move away from Twitter, uh, the more Twitter will dwindle. And I think that maybe after Trump would be the right time for, for Jack Dorsey to finally just, you know, pack it in and, and sell it to Verizon for, for maybe a fraction of what they could have sold it for a couple years ago. Well, <clears throat> we will see. We will come back on this podcast, consider, if providing people still listen to podcasts then and haven't deleted them from their phone, <laughs> uh, and, and we will check in. Maya, thank you so much for taking the time to, um, to chat with us today, and, uh, and make sure you stay off social media. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. Thanks to my guest this week, Maya Kosoff. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave the greatest, most glowing 12-star review that you possibly can. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. Thanks to my editors at Vanity Fair. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors, Goop and Freshly. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I will see you all next week. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. From PR.